Craig Hoffman. Back at it on the Hoffman Show here on HoffmanShow.com, iTunes, SoundCloud, however you're checking it out. Much, much appreciate you. It's been kind of a weird couple of weeks. Been doing a little travel. Uh, had some the NBA Finals wrapping up. So uh, some different podcasts, but back in the traditional Hoffman Show mode today. Uh, talk about the NBA draft here. I have a prevailing thought that's really a bigger than than NBA draft thought uh, in just a moment. And then uh, we're going to talk about more NBA movements and stuff that did and didn't happen. With the Bulls, the Derrick Rose trade, and the Jimmy Butler near trade. How close was that to happening? Nick Friedel has answers. ESPN's terrific Bulls reporter. Talk a little soccer. Copa America with Tyler Kern of Soccer Today. Uh, one of the best soccer shows out there. Uh, he's coming up at the bottom of the hour, so to speak. I'm so used to radio. In 30 minutes. Because um, we're not on a clock. You could be listening to this really at any time. Half an hour, Tyler Kern, and then uh, call it a wrap. As always, a few loose ends to tie up, a few random fleeting thoughts that I would love to get in. And so we'll do that coming up at the end of the show. Also, real quick before I dive into this NBA thought, um, I went up to New York last week, Studio 54, which was super cool, uh, and recorded the That's What She Said podcast. Alexa Dat, who's been a guest on this show, um, and we we cut it up on the popularity of soccer in America, um, on why everyone hates LeBron James, which is kind of the sports topics of last week. Um, the Derrick Rose trade, it was the day after that. Um, also talked a little about the media. Talked a little bit about uh, my, my my last radio station, too. If you're an ESPN 980 listener um, and you discovered me, so to speak, there, uh, and you're interested about some of the people that I worked with and all that, we talked about all that stuff. Um, what it's like to be a reporter um, especially a young reporter in my case. So all that uh, was a really fun time. Alexa is phenomenal. Um, definitely support her. Um, love her and uh, her husband, Peter Rosenberg, uh, who I was actually just watching. He's on filling in on Rosillo and Cannell uh, some this week. He's with my, my another good friend of mine, and I believe guest on the show. Nah, I don't, actually, I don't think I've had him on the podcast yet, Adnan Verk, uh, but they do a great job when they're filling in. Um, but Peter and Alexa have, have been awesome to me, and uh, I was thrilled that I was able to go up and, and sit with Alexa for an hour plus and, and just chop it up on a bunch of different stuff. Um, so I put that on the blog, HoffmanShow.com. Check that out. All right, that is more than enough of other things. Let's let's dive in real quick to this NBA thought. Uh, the, the NBA thought is, is on asset management, and I'll put it this way, and I'll put it this way in the form of this question. Who would you rather be, the Celtics or the 76ers? I think most fans would say I would much rather be certainly a Celtics fan because you, I mean, I love watching that team play. They play so hard. They compete their butts off every single night. Are they the most talented? No. Isaiah Thomas, best player on the team, all-star, but kind of an overachiever. I mean, look. We can say I think it's it's easy to point to his height, but let's be real, guys. His size don't make it in this league. Of course, he's an overachiever. That's awesome. Um, it's great for him, but he does have his limitations. Jay Crowder is one of the better players on that team. Like Jay freaking Crowder, um, which is funny because he was the best player in the Rashawn Rondo trade, and the Mavs gave him up. Good job. Oh, sorry, I'm not actually contractually required to take a pot shot at the Mavericks every time anybody around the Rajon Rondo trade is mentioned. I just take great joy in it. Um, 
Avery Bradley, really good, good player, more of a, a three and D guy, but maybe the best three and D guy in the league. So it's a fun group to watch, especially if you're really kind of a basketball purist, which I can be a little bit of a snob about the game. I'll admit that, and that's great. But from an asset standpoint, who would you rather be, them or the 76ers? Because if the goal is to win a championship, which it is, I I think some teams, I mean, you can be at different points in that development where sometimes your goal in a specific season isn't to win a championship, it's to get better and and to put yourself in position to eventually win a championship. And the Sixers and the Celtics have gone about this very different ways. The Celtics have tried to build up a nice core and be a landing spot for a disgruntled, whether it be free agent who wants to leave or to have the assets to trade for a a guy who is disgruntled and acquire a star that way. And for this, we're going to say, we're going to qualify a star as someone who is capable of being the best player on a championship team. And there aren't enough of those for every single team in the league. And there are certainly guys who we don't know about. I have no idea if DeMarcus Cousins is capable of being the best player on a championship team. He puts up crazy numbers. He's very productive. But is it because his team is or he's surrounded by garbage and someone has to shoot? I think he's a little better than that. But sometimes you've got guys who put up numbers because someone's got to shoot. We're not talking about those guys. We're not talking about guys who can get numbers. You're talking about a star. Someone who can help lead you to a championship. And the Celtics have decided, we're going to try to acquire one. The Sixers have decided, we're going to try to draft one. Neither plan is perfect. But if you look at where we are, both teams roughly the same length into their plans. The Celtics have a bunch of assets that could be flipped for a star. But there are no stars to go get right now. They tried for Jimmy Butler, but the reality is their assets aren't good enough. And, by the way, they do have assets where they could potentially draft one. If they had won the draft lottery this year, they would have the same player that the Sixers wound up drafting. There's luck involved in all of these plans. And, by the way, the Nets are terrible, and they have their pick next year. So they can go get it again. So, when you look at these plans, it's hard to evaluate the results. And, ironically enough, considering we're talking about the Sixers, you have to evaluate the process. What it comes down to is how much do you care about the results in the interim? Because... In theory, both plans can work, and you're just going to get there very different ways. If you're the Celtics, you're going to steadily climb and climb and climb, and you're going to hit a plateau eventually. Like They're not going to do any better than they did last year. A 48-win team challenging for the third seed right down to the very bitter end of the season. Like The Celtics aren't going to come all of a sudden this year and all of a sudden be a 50-win team. They're going to be in the high 40s and and challenge for home court, which is fine. It's a great place to be, and you hope you win a playoff series, but that's your ceiling. You're not doing better than that. The Sixers just suck. Like They flat out stink up 
the joint. The war, one of the worst teams in the league for th- what are we at three straight years? But if you look at who's got the better future, you go, man, the ceiling on the Sixers is higher. The ceiling is that Ben Simmons becomes the best player on a championship team. Or one of those caliber guys. Or that Joel Embiid becomes one of those caliber guys. They've got two. All the Celtics want is one. Jaleel Okafor is going to be more than just a guy if he sticks around. Nerlens Noel has got potential to be more than just a guy if he sticks around. Like a Tristan Thompson starter kit. And now, of course, they could also make trades. It's all about acquiring assets. And it was so interesting because on draft night, the Sixers acquire the best asset they can get, Ben Simmons, and his future is limitless. All of a sudden, the Celtics' assets kind of expired, right? Like, they couldn't flip the third pick into something more concrete. So I guess we'll take Jalen Brown and vote for the best. But it just could have easily worked the other way. What if the Sixers wind up with a third pick? They probably take Chris Dunn out of Providence, um, who they really liked and tried to actually make a trade with the Sixers to go get, or a trade with the Celtics to go get. And then what are we talking about? Oh my God, the Celtics got Ben Simmons. Let's see how fast they can get him up to speed in a couple of years as Crowder and, and Bradley are still on that team and producing, and maybe Isaiah Thomas is still there and producing. Like That team could be really, really good. The point is, it's your your best bet, and both of these teams have done this in very different ways, is to expand your window as long as possible. Because you need a little luck. And that goes at the top end too. The Cavs benefit from Steph Curry getting hurt, from Draymond Green getting suspended. You put yourself in a position to be as good as you can be, and then hope you get a few breaks. And maybe the next year the Celtics get their breaks. And they get the number one pick and they take Harry Giles or whoever is going to be the best player next year. And they've got their superstar. And Simmons pans out. And maybe those are the powers of the Eastern Conference and the post-LeBron James era. Who knows? But all you can do is accumulate assets. And it was just interesting to see how the NBA draft played out this year that there were kind of no more room for assets on the roster. And so you've got these teams that had to take international players and stash them overseas and then hope that either someone else wants them and they're an asset that way or that eventually they're going to make room. But for right now, the cupboard's full and they're kind of waiting for that those, uh, those assets to materialize into actual players who can help them win games this season. Craig Hoffman. Nick Friedel covers the Bulls for ESPN and ESPN.com. We have things to talk about that did happen. And just as interestingly, Nick, things to talk about that didn't happen. Let's start there. Um, just with a quick prediction, I guess. Is Jimmy Butler going to be on the Bulls roster when this season starts? Because on draft night, he nearly got dealt. So how close was that to happening? And will, do you think it still will happen? Uh, Craig, I, I actually believe now, 
after what happened on draft night, the Jimmy, the, the odds are higher that Jimmy will be here to open training camp. Uh, in talking to the people I trust within the Bulls organization, they say that the deals that were reported never came that close because they didn't feel like they were getting enough value in return. Uh, having said all that, I, I don't believe Jimmy Butler will finish out his contract in Chicago. I'd be really surprised if that happened. Uh, I think fans are a little shocked to hear that Jimmy may be on his way out at some point, but uh, I can't stress this enough. I feel like I've been saying this uh, the past couple months, but Jimmy rubbed a lot of people within the organization the wrong way. How he handled himself uh, last season and then trying to be more of a vocal leader. It wasn't just some of the veteran players in the locker room. It was some of the executives as well. So uh, he's still absolutely one of the best two-way players in the game. But the Bulls are trying to do what they haven't done in a long, long time, which is sell high uh, on one of their most valuable assets. So for as good as Jimmy is, given where the Bulls are right now as a team and given his relationship internally, uh, I still think uh, at some point, uh, and probably some point in the near future, Jimmy will be playing elsewhere. What did he do that rubbed people the wrong way? Uh, specifically, it was just kind of in how he carried himself. Uh, Jimmy was so well-liked when he came into the league uh, as just uh, the humble guy who, who came in and did his work and, and just wanted to find his, his place on the team. And everybody was respecting him uh, for that. And, and nobody questions, let's clear this up now, too, Craig, nobody questions Jimmy's work ethic. Right. And I've been around him five years. I, I don't think anybody works harder than he does day in, day out. It shows how much he's improved in the game. And I think his teammates would tell you the same. He has really given everything he's got to get to the level where he is. It's more just that they they saw Jimmy in a certain light, and then Jimmy got better and became more of a superstar, and, and he wanted everything that came with that, which includes the respect as the guy and some of the teammates were like wait what <laughs> what's going on here on top of all of this and on top of the, the personality classes i think the issue for the bulls front office is they know they're rebuilding but even more they don't believe jimmy is the number one guy on a championship caliber team now he may come out next year, the next couple of years, and he may get even better and he may prove even more people wrong, myself included. But I think internally, the feeling is that Jimmy, for as good as he is, is never going to be the number one guy. And given the way things have shaken out here, even the last week or so after the Bulls moved Jarrett Rose, they've got to come to a lot of conclusions, and I don't think they're ready to bury themselves to Jimmy Butler as being the face uh, for a long, long time to come. What's it going to take then for another team to get Butler? Because, I mean, the best deal I saw in draft night that was thrown out there as a rumor was that uh, Zach Levine, who is 
fine. Like I think we he he the potential work gets thrown a lot around a lot with him because he's super bouncy and it's fun to watch. But like as a basketball player, he's fine. Um, but Chris Dunn, who's the number five overall pick and who a lot of people had as the third best player in this draft, if that's not going to get it done, what is it going to take for someone to pry Jimmy Butler from the Bulls? Well, uh, first of all, I, I don't I, I don't believe in what was out there. You don't think uh, that deal was on the I've table? To. Well, yeah, I, I in the in the people I've talked to in the last couple of days, they say that what was out there wasn't all that was part of the deal, and they say some of the deals that were proposed in the media weren't actually proposed in real life. So take that for what you will. Interesting, uh, and that's always part of any. It's free discussion. Sure, sure. And it did say, just just real quick, it did seem that on draft night, a lot of the rumors seemed to be coming from the Minnesota side because it just, you know, it's optimistic this is going to happen. It's optimistic this is going to happen. Um, and it seemed like the the Wolves were the ones who really wanted to make that deal as much as the Bulls might have wanted to. It, it, it just seemed the way the story flowed that a lot of the stuff was coming from the Minnesota side. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's interesting to see uh, how all of that played out, and and knowing uh, Gar and Tax, and knowing Tom as well, Tom Thibodeau as well as I do over time. Sure. <laughs> it was it was all those guys involved again after their very public divorce a couple years ago. Uh, that was uh, intriguing, but the truth, as always, in trade rumors on both sides. Uh, for the Bulls, the Timberwolves, and, and even the Celtics, for them, it's always somewhere in the middle. So, with that in mind, to to the question about what it's going to take, I think the Bulls are banking on the fact that he's going to go out. Now he's a member of the U.S. Olympic team, going to Rio. Uh, if, he, if he stays healthy, there's no reason to believe he won't be an All Star again uh, this coming season. And with the enormous amount of money that's coming in the league, Craig. I think the Bulls are, are very confident that after all these crazy deals are signed this summer, Jimmy, who will then be 27 years old, still in the prime of his career, uh, is is going to look even better to some team. So what does that mean? Well, next year's draft is supposed to be better, so I would think it would be a high draft pick in next year's draft and another draft pick down the line, and then one or two very good young players who are on controllable contracts. So, uh, you know, which players or, or which teams it may be, uh, you don't know with what's coming in free agency. But again, I believe that uh, Jimmy will end up elsewhere at some point. I just couldn't tell you exactly when that'll be. That's a great point, too, because these contracts that have been previously signed are going to be look like such sweetheart deals as the money comes in. Um, and actually opened the podcast today talking about asset management. So that's a good job of asset management by the Bulls. Um, I, I want to get to Rose in a second, but one last question on on kind of, this is, I guess, Butler-related, but what's left of the Bulls? Because I saw you tweeting earlier um, that the Bulls just don't have a lot of talent right now. What If they trade Butler, like what's left? What there is left as a core to build around? Or would it be a complete start over where nothing that they have is really part of their future plans? Well, there's not much right now. <laughs> and that's even with you. That's, that's the hardest part for Bulls fans that have watched this team contend for a title, or at least in theory contend for a title despite all these injuries for the last few years. 
the, the pieces to build around now are Jimmy Butler for sure, but again, I don't know if they're they're married to him uh, for life here. And, and then after that, it creates a bunch of question marks. Guys like Bobby Portis, Doug McDermott, Nico Miritich, they just drafted Denzel Valentine from Michigan State, uh, who they're high on. But do any of those names <laughs> strike fear into your heart? Nope. No. And oh, I'm so shocked at how they're high on the guy they just drafted. Amazing how yeah, that works, yeah, right? We've, we've heard we've heard that a few times in in the NBA. That, I, I'm just waiting guy. for the team to come out and be like, "Yeah, that guy we just took, he's really not that good." We just were like, "Yeah, you know <laughs> yeah, what? Yeah. I think we'll take him for fun." But you're going to be waiting a long, long time for that. <laughs> a long, long time. Uh, as far as short term goes, I think Ty Gibson is on his way out. They'll find a deal to move him. Same goes for Mike Dunleavy, and then after that. There's so much hype around this free agency, but from the Bulls' perspective, great. Look, look at look at the options they have. You tell me which high-level free agents come to Chicago right now. It's not happening. So either you overpay, and it seems like almost every team in the league right now has a ton of money, so that may not be the smartest move, or you bring in guys on one-year, two-year deals, and you hit that that salary cap uh, level that every team has to hit. And you play for another day, and you hope that guys like McDermott and Chris Felicio, a kid they got from Brazil last year, you hope guys like that can take another step in their development. And then you see uh, where you're at in a year. Uh, but for the time being, uh, the, the short-term outlook here is definitely bleak. Yeah, so I, I started the show, in my asset management thing was kind of asking, would you rather be the Celtics or the Sixers? So it sounds like more of a Celtics plan than a Sixers plan, but... Um, we'll see where it winds up. As for Derrick Rose, um, you covered him for a long time um, through incredible highs and incredible lows. I mean, even though I guess we probably knew it was coming, like, is there still a level of shock that that guy, the hometown kid, wound up getting traded away? And not just traded away. Like, I, I stepped back on the day of the trade and went, I cannot believe he just got traded for a package whose best asset is Jerry and Grant. Like that, that just blows my mind that we got here this quickly. I, I'm assuming for you, it, it's probably something even more intense because of how closely you you've been around this team. Yeah, it, it really it's been weird even in the last few days. I got to be honest, uh, I I saw the best and the worst. Yeah, and it wasn't just Derek, Greg. It was this whole Bulls era, right? With Derek and with Tibbs and with Joe Keem and the last couple of years with Pau Gasol. You just thought that there was always something more, and it always kind of be one of those dreams unfulfilled for the city. But specifically in regards to Derek, I, I, I really enjoy covering him personally. I think at heart he's a very, very good guy, and I hope the best for him. I just don't know if he can stay healthy, and, and that's the problem. If he does, I think he'll still be a high-level guard in the league. If he can come in this year and and get off to a better start. Remember last season, everybody remembers the knee injuries, but last year, first part of training camp on the first day, he breaks his face, Yeah, and he was out for uh, a month. And then he came back, and he really didn't play well because he had no rhythm because he missed all the training camp. So all these different things have popped up, but for certain, within the city, uh, there were there were so many good moments, so many bad moments with the injuries and some of the stuff he said publicly. But there is still a sense of shock for a portion of the fan base because you invest so much in 
following these players' careers, and Derek even more so because he grew up here. He was part of the culture and fabric of the city, and boom, that trade happens, and it's over. And from the Bulls' perspective, I think it was the right move just as it was time to move on, and they knew they weren't going to win a title with what they had. And sadly, to your point about what they got back, by far and away, I think that was the best package because I was told a couple different times that the Bulls were asked to give up a future first-round pick to take Derek's deal on in that last year. So there's always a lot of factors at play. Uh, but the, the the reality that Derek ain't going to be in a Bulls uniform any, anymore is still jarring, for sure. Yeah, and that 25 is going to be real jarring on him, switching numbers back in New York. Um, a- end of the day, just real quick, last question. At some point, 10 years down the line, is Derek Rose invited back, and what's the crowd reaction like? And like, I mean, is this a guy who, because he won the MVP, is is going to be up for getting his number retired, or is it just not sustained enough as high as the high was, where he might be part of something else and he'll get clapped for, and and that's going to be the extent of the Bulls honoring Derek Rose in the future? Well, I posed that exact question uh, about the jersey retirement to. Uh, all the fans out there on Twitter. And it was so interesting to me because some people said, oh, you're out of your mind, man. Are you kidding? He, he didn't have that many great years to warrant that. And then other people said, absolutely, he should get his number retired. So I think that the city is split in regards to how exactly to honor Derek. For what it's worth, I don't think the Bulls are going to retire his jersey, uh, but it is an interesting uh, talking point. As far as the future goes, Eric, in my opinion, is going to be looked at as a beloved figure in this city in years to come. It's like everybody needs time. It's like you need time after the breakup. (laughs) You you need time. Everybody to take a deep breath and look back on the good times. And Greg, there were great times with Derek in this city. Uh, It just wasn't the same because he got hurt. He didn't come back after that initial ACL injury. Some of the comments he made really irritated people. But all of that aside, uh, over time, I believe Derrick Rose, wherever he goes in Chicago when he makes public appearances, is going to have a ton of people cheering for him and cheering his name. And, and all the other stuff will kind of fly by the wayside. For all Nick's stuff on the Bulls, you can consume him on all of ESPN's platforms, TV, find him on the radio, uh, ESPN.com, obviously. Follow him on Twitter, at Nick Friedel. Nick, thank you, and now go sleep. (laughs) You got it, buddy. Thanks for having me on. Craig Hoffman. Tyler Kern is officially the producer, although he's pretty much a co-host of soccer today. One of the biggest soccer. It actually emanates as a radio show out of my old station in Dallas, 103.3 FM ESPN. But as a podcast, one of the biggest and best soccer podcasts in the country. And Tyler, um, I'm going to ask what I think is, to start, a dumb American question. Um, but, But I feel like... There's this big, and, and I don't think I'm a dumb American soccer fan. I know a little bit about what's going on. But like I feel like there's two, in the soccer world, there's two um, distinct groups. And I guess maybe this isn't a, a dumb American question because you have to kind of understand the, the sides of this to, to really be able to ask this question. There's this side that says, like, U.S. soccer is doing fine. It's growing. It's expanding. Klinsman's doing a good job. Just stick with it. 
some of the talent is coming. There's also a side that says, like, look at this game against Argentina. We are not anywhere close to being at the level that we think an American sports team should be. So the simple question after that long, obnoxious setup is this. How should we feel about a fourth-place finish in Copa America? Uh, ooh, that, that is a good question. Well, first of all, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, absolutely. A, a fourth-place finish uh, at home, first of all, needs to be pointed out. This is this is on American soil, this tournament. Sure. Uh, and traditionally, teams do well at home. Last year, Chile won uh, in Chile. Now, I mean, they, they won again, and so maybe they're proving me wrong a little bit. <laughs> there. But, uh, but a fourth-place finish, I, I don't feel, is terribly impressive on the United States part. First of all, uh, in the group stage, they lost to Colombia and then beat Costa Rica, Paraguay, and then beat Ecuador in the knockout round and then lost to Argentina and then Colombia again. So they didn't really beat a team that you're surprised that they beat. The Ecuador game was probably the most razor-edge game where it could go either way. So if we're talking about the, the program as a whole, I think under Klinsman, it's not... It's not incorrect to say that they haven't improved. That's probably putting it as nicely as I can because I'm, I fall into the camp that that says, um, sure, we have we don't have the same talent that Argentina has. I don't think anyone can debate that Argentina has best player in the world. You know, obviously came very close to winning Copa America. Um, fantastic team. The U.S. just doesn't have that talent. There's a lot of different reasons for that, uh, but. The U.S. has made uh, a living, basically, on being a team that, even though they don't have the same talent, will go nose-to-nose with people and really compete based on what they have. And what they always had was great athleticism, good endurance, and then they would rely on their strengths and be a very, very difficult team to play against. In 2009, the U.S. beat Spain at, you know, right as Spain was peaking as one of the world powers. Uh, they, won the, uh, they won the Euros. They won the World Cup in 20... You know, so, so, this is not a situation where the U.S. Um, doesn't have, hasn't beaten teams like Argentina in the past. And so I think that's the thing is in the past we've been uh, very good at doing certain things, and we aren't good at that anymore. We lack a cohesive identity, and that's the thing under Klinsman that I think drives most people crazy is we didn't really go in against Argentina with a plan that, would, that set our team up to win. And, uh, and that's a problem. So, so long story short, uh, not necessarily uh, thrilled, I would say, with a fourth-place finish at Copa America. There are certain, uh, there's certainly problems. There, there were good performances and bad performances, but overall I'd say that the, that the program is not trending in an upward direction. Best-case scenario, it's stagnated. Yeah, and that's, I mean, it, it does come down, obviously, in part to the talent. What can you do? with the talent there is a good amount of young talent in this program some guys specifically that I want to talk about in a moment but when you look at the thing that the U.S. seems to have been lacking for years it is this special attack talent I mean Landon Donovan was obviously very good but was more in that Mm -hmm. midfield distributor role Clint Dempsey has bounced back and forth between this midfield distributor but but really has been a finisher but he's at this point you know in his mid-30s and he's still a notch below that that top top level um right and there's no depth of it so even even i mean i guess when the u.s was at its best is when those two were still in the primes of their careers is that just a a a matter of there aren't that many guys in the world to go around or is there something with the development of american soccer talent that has led to where brazil and spain and argentina and all these other countries seem to be able to consistently produce at least one guy the u.s never feels like it has that guy 
Uh, you know, that's that's a very good question. There, there are a number of reasons for that. Part of it is how we develop players. I don't necessarily think that the way we go about developing players really breeds creativity. Uh, I think that there's also something to be said for, and this is this is a Klinsman talking point, and on this area I, I really agree with Klinsman, that players around the world play all the time. That it's the, the ball is always on their foot, and that's not to say that, you know, that that players don't always uh, don't don't get the uh, what's the word I'm looking for that that the seasons here don't don't work or things like that. But but the fact of the matter is, there's always a ball on a kid's foot in different countries. If you go to a country like Argentina, and then these kids are also very well set up to get into academies abroad that, that kind of breed these these powerhouse type players. And so you look at a guy like. Uh, I'm sure in a minute we'll talk about Christian Pulisic. Right. Uh, one of the things about him is that because he held a, a Croatian an EU passport, he was able to get over to Dortmund at a younger age. We still have growing to do with our developmental academies of how to take kids that are good when they're 10, 11, 12 and breed them into these players that uh, are international caliber players at the highest levels, and we're still behind in that area. And that's going to take some time because it also takes developing coaches, uh, which isn't easy to do. It takes uh, developing these systems of finding players. And, it, and to a certain extent, uh, the size of our country, while it's often cited as a positive, oh, you've got all of these players to choose from, makes it hard to find, right, because we don't have a hard time identifying and finding uh, who the best high school football players are going to be to go to the best college programs. We still have that problem with, with soccer just because we're not used to how uh, to go about finding these guys quite in the same way. Because you, you got to identify them when they're young, 10, 11. You know, Messi was over in Barcelona's academy at a really young age. And so that, that's, that's a challenge, and that's something that we, we need to it starts younger and it starts earlier than I think we think. I think because of high school sports and college sports, the way that they work with other, you know, football, basketball, other sports, you think of, okay, you identify this guy when he's 17, 18, bring him into a college program, but really in soccer, it has to start when they're 10, 11, 12. Yeah. And it's the consistency. Cause I mean, there are certainly travel, you know, AAU teams, however you want to, whatever the, the proper terminology is for soccer yeah. and basketball, you know, it's the whole AAU circuit that does start when these kids are 10, 11, 12. Um, and you're traveling, I mean, maybe sometimes even younger than that, but it's the consistency in coaching that you're talking about um, that, that makes the difference. I know that's something that well, Clemson's yeah, talked yeah. about. Yeah. And, and I'm sitting here in, in Italy, Spain is on my television right now. And uh, these kids that are playing for Spain have played in this system since the age of 10 and there's there's a consistent way of play this is what we do in this country this is our country's identity and that's one of the things that Clinton was brought in to establish for the united states because he has a dual role right Clinton is not only just the head coach of the u.s men's soccer team he's also the technical director and right. so uh general manager of sorts i guess you know if, if we're making parallels to other sports but um sets the direction for hey here's how we're going to go about doing things this is going to be our style of play this is going to be our formation. This is going to be how we want to how we want to play. It is a very broad, idealistic role. Um, but right now, the U.S. just doesn't have a consistent uh, way that we play in this country that goes from youth soccer all the way up to adult, uh, all the way up to the nas- senior national team. And that's something that uh, is lacking because I'm sitting here watching Spain. They played this way forever. I'm watching Italy. It is uh, famous Italian defending. Italian defense is is just a thing. Uh, 2006 World Cup, they won and they barely scored at all, uh, but won the entire World Cup based on just how freaking good their defense was. 
U.S. just doesn't have that, and uh, that's something that's sorely lacking. So let's talk about Christian Pulisic, uh, 17 years old, playing yep. in the, Germans Bundes- the German Bundesliga. Um, I-, I felt like every time he came into the game and was around the ball, good things happened. H- how many players on the U.S. roster, regardless of age, right now, the senior na- men's national team, like, is it something where you could look at the roster and go, there are only five players that are better than him, if that? Because I feel like he's already, despite the fact that he's only 17, he's already that good and that impactful. Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't know. You know, you'd be comparing a, a defender and saying, oh, is, is the defender better than Christian overall? Uh, I, I don't know. I, I would say John Brooks is probably the best American at his position right now playing center back just as a lockdown guy. But in terms of attacking talent, uh, I mean, I, I, you've got Christian Pulisic and then you've got uh, Darlington Nagby, and neither of those guys really saw the field, which is a, a gripe that I have. But, yeah, that kid is uh, hes phenomenal. He's active. He checks back to the ball. He wants to get involved in the play. Uh, he makes proactive runs. One of my big uh, gripes with a guy like Jossie Zardes is he, he's very reactive. He makes the run after he sees the ball played. Blissig is a guy that's always thinking, always testing the back line, and if that doesn't work, he checks back to the ball. He picks it up, puts pressure on the defense, and that's just something that most Americans don't do, and that's why it's so great to see it and why he stands out so well on the field as you see him, and he's doing stuff that other guys are doing. And even if, even if just the average fan that's just watching the game – doesn't necessarily know what it is he's doing. It, he's, he stood out on the screen, did he not? Like it, it, oh, it, yeah. It popped. It, it totally popped. And part of it is the academy that he's in and, and playing professionally over with Borussia Dortmund, which is uh, just a machine in Germany. They're, they're fantastic. And then he broke into the senior team and scored two goals as a 17-year-old over there in the Bundesliga. Um, but he's been well-coached from a young age. His dad was a professional player. And, and you can just tell that he has that IQ. And what drove me crazy was Klinsmann's insistence that you can't give him too much too fast. And there's, there's this idea amongst a lot of uh, people that care about soccer that uh, we don't want to create another Freddie Adu situation where you give a kid too much. And I don't, think that, I don't think you can compare the two. Just because they're young and they're both good when they were young, you know, Freddie Adu was great when he was 16. He, he, was, he was actually a very, very promising player. You can't compare the two primarily because they're just so different. Pulisic lives with his dad in Germany, uh, plays in a different team, is just a different guy. You know, players have different personalities. They're human beings. And so he, he's a different kid. And so when Klinsmann said, I didn't want to give him too much too fast, what, it's, it's fine with me that he didn't start in any of the major Copa America games. The third-place game he should have started. There was absolutely no reason for youth to not be served in that case and to play uh, a kid like Pulisic in that game because – uh, give him a chance to get out there, take his licks at the international level. And look, when he got in, he looked great. Yeah, and that's the thing. He's played against higher-level competition than most of his American counterparts who um, might have, if they've spent their careers in, say, MLS. Like he, He's already, and as you said, he, he comes in, senior national team, in one of the best leagues in the world, scores two goals. And you're worried about giving that kid too much too fast? It doesn't make yeah. a lot of sense to me. Um, all right, real quick, let's wrap up on the final last night and more specifically what happened after, what was said after. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chile beats Argentina. Messi loses again, um, which seems rather harsh dependent on just him considering how brilliant he was all tournament. But uh, yeah. as over his international career, Argentina has never won a, a major tournament. Um, and, and that frustration has apparently grown to where he said he might retire or is going to retire from international soccer um, and yeah. playing for – 
for the Argentine national team after or effective immediately. Um, one, do you believe him? And two, how much of that has to go um, back to the pressure of, of trying to live up to Maradona? Because those two, the relationship between them is always seemed off. Yeah, it's it's strained where you know to the point where maybe a week before Copa America, Maradona said uh, Messi doesn't have leadership skills and things like that. It's just it's it's strange. And, and to make a comparison, in, in case person. people yeah. aren't soccer fans, it's like Michael Jordan saying these things about LeBron. Like that's the best way yeah, I can yeah. I can compare it. Yeah, exactly. That's 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 a that's a good comparison. And you know, yeah. So you asked me if I believe him. Uh, I believe that he means it today. But if you <laughs> ask me if I think, right. it, yeah. Yeah, I, I totally think he means it right now. But if you ask me if, if he'll be playing in the 2018 World Cup, which two years away he'll be 30, 31-ish years old, uh, I think the answer is yes. I cannot picture him not not giving it one more shot. And, uh, you know, I, I'm sure you've seen this, but apparently uh, seven or so other Argentinian players have talked about retiring from international football and, and, and leaving the Argentinian national team. And part of that, seems to suggest that there's there are some problems with the Argentinian Football Association. They haven't actually had a president since 2014 uh, oh, when an Argentinian like an important soccer, position. Yeah, they, they they haven't had leadership there. They the, their travel schedule kind of got all screwed up in their logistics departments where they didn't get very much rest at all before the final the other night and uh, Messi actually had an Instagram post about it and just kind of ranted about it a little bit. I wouldn't be surprised if this wasn't a concerted effort on at least some of the other guys' part. Maybe not Messi's because it seemed like he was speaking very emotionally. But there wasn't some kind of effort made by the guys in that room after that game to say, you know, this uh, some changes are needed in the federation. And then with Messi specifically, I think that there is so much pressure on that guy. And you got to consider the last three major tournaments, they lost to Germany in extra time in the World Cup final. Then they lost to Chile last year in penalty kicks in the Copa America final. And then to lose again... Uh, and it always gets thrown on him, right? It's it, he's he, you know it's it's the same thing as a quarterback in football, where you know he could have been the most amazing quarterback and thrown for 500 yards and five touchdowns in the Super Bowl, but if the defense couldn't stop anybody, it didn't matter. The loss still goes on his ledger. Uh, that's that's how this feels with Messi because he was so good all tournament and so brilliant last night, but it's just going to come back on him. And I think at a certain point that gets really frustrating. And I yeah, I think he was speaking emotionally last night. I think he means it, but I. I I would be shocked if we don't see him in 2018. Yeah, I agree. I mean, he's emotional, and that's completely understandable. But when the emotion subsides, cleaner or clearer heads will prevail, and uh, yeah, yeah, he'll he'll be back. There, are, there are people that are in Argentina who who consider him more more of a Barcelona native than an Argentinian, which is just ridiculous because you see him crying after a game. He clearly cares. People people claim all the time that he doesn't care about Argentina. Bullcrap. So. Yeah, yeah I, I, I totally understand the emotion that he feels, and I would probably feel the same way. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's a good, that's a good point. He, as you said earlier, we talking about the development. He's been in Barcelona for a long time, but um, certainly yep. certainly feels proud for his country. Um, soccer today, you can check it out. Uh, it's at nine a.m. Central time, correct? That's so correct. ten, 10 a.m. Eastern on Sunday mornings um, on, on ESPN Dallas. It's uh, one hundred three point three if you're down there, or just ESPN Dallas. Um, ch- you can check out the uh, the app uh, if you want to check it out live or uh, at ESPN Soccer today on the podcast or you can have the podcast links there follow tyler at tyler a kern right you got that, that right correct. There. you try to sneak that a in the middle but i saw it i'm all over it uh tyler you know a, gotta add the middle initial if someone yeah. else has already taken your uh 
your your straight up name on Twitter. So, yeah, you go you with that that or the underscore, the middle initial one. That right, battle. right. Um, I know. Tyler, the uh, the producer uh, in name, but for for all intents and purposes, a, a co-host of that show with Steve Davis and Mark Stein, who you may have heard of because he does stuff with basketball. He's a big deal. Yeah, he's he's a big. I saw him last week. I, saw, I was at the Nash tournament and he was playing. Yeah, where you where you? Yeah, he uh, man, he loves going and playing up there and rubbing shoulders with you know. Famous soccer players and stuff. Yeah. He he gets he gets giddy about that. And with uh, with Ronde Hollis Jefferson and Bismack Biombo, uh, Stein was more rubbing ribs because uh, they're tall <laughs> and he's not. Um, so you can <laughs> check out uh, Tyler at all those places. Uh, check out soccer today, man. I appreciate the time. Good to catch up and uh, and we'll talk soon. Hey, thanks so much, Greg. Talk to you later, man. Call the rap. I've always been a big fan of the Olympics, always loved watching. Um, I, ever since I was a little kid, it was always a thing in our house, one of those things that we all watch together as a family, um, especially the primetime coverage, you know, the swimming, the gymnastics, the track and field in the summer, um, whatever the, the biggest events were. And, and a, you know, in a given year, it kind of was more star-driven in the winter. You know, you think of the speed skating with Apollo Anton Ono or um, you know, obviously figure skating is always a, a big deal, but, um, the, the Olympics were always a big deal and always have been, I'm a big fan. And so, um, uh, when it gets around this time of year, like I don't pretend like I keep up with swimming in the interim, uh, but I'll watch some of the trials probably. And then I'll be psyched to watch the U S compete and, and the, the best that we've got against the best that everyone else has got. Um, gymnastics, same thing. Like I'll watch that. I won't watch another gymnastics tournament for four years. Um, and then I'll watch maybe the, the little bit of the trials. And that's exactly what I did the other night was watch a little bit of the trials. I I was after the U S third place loss in Copa and I flipped over to NBC and it was actually right as the competition. I didn't even see anybody compete. Um, they were discussing who was going to make the team and then they actually announced the team. And something really cool happened. Something really, really cool happened. They announced the team, and John Orozco was out there bawling his eyes out. Um, Olympian now who's been through an incredible amount of pain. He lost his mother um, in the past year. He has fought back from injury. I believe he blew his Achilles a year ago. And so to get back at an Olympic level in just that short amount of time, relatively speaking, is unbelievable. Understandably, he is crying out of control. And while she was not out of control, Nastia Lukin was also crying. Um, 2008 Olympic gold medalist um, and now part of NBC's broadcast team. And she goes, I don't know. She's crying on the air. And um, we didn't know it at the time. It's, it's not on camera. But uh, the the host of the proceedings, Nastia, what, what's going through your head right now? we hear some sniffles, and she just goes, I, I don't know why I'm so emotional. But, I mean, it's really not that hard to figure out. She understands what it takes, what it's been through. I interviewed Nastia a couple of years ago at this point um, down in Dallas where she's from and where I was living at the time and had her come in. It was supposed to be the start of a podcast series and didn't get any support on it, so... We did one super long interview and never got to do and sit sit down and do any others. But it was really cool getting to spend an hour with someone who is achieved at the absolute highest levels. And her, you know, she told me about how she, you know, was twelve years old and broke her back and was in a back brace and the eight hour training days and just 
that sport specifically where you peak at such a young age um, and you have to give up a lot of your childhood to train, it's something that few of us can ever understand. And then to have the extra emotion of all that it must have been going through John Orozco's head, um, Nastia is a good human being, felt his pain and joy simultaneously probably there there had to be a simultaneous joy of achieving the goal and a pain that his mother wasn't there to see it and I appreciated her raw emotion and quite frankly wish more people would do it um in the analyst role, it's one thing if you're in some position that is journalistic, and I think all roles in the media need to have some journalistic principles, but at the end of the day, your job as an analyst is to convey to the audience an expertise and an insight. And part of that insight and expertise is understanding the toll. And there's a physical, mental, and emotional toll to achieve at a level that most of us, even if we are doing something that is the exact opposite of the fame or that will uh, obtain us the opposite of the fame of being an Olympic athlete or professional athlete, if you're an accountant and you're the best accountant in the world, you're probably not going to be famous for it. But the chances are you're not the best accountant in the world. I'm not the best radio host in the world. Um, whatever Whatever your job is, chances are that we won't be the best one to ever do it. And so if you've been there and been in that percent of people who do understand what it's like to be at the very top, why not share that emotion? And the fact that Nastya did, I thought was really, really cool. And I hope that, you know, if if after the Super Bowl, Troy Aikman or Chris Collinsworth said, gave us more, some of that insight, and it's different because it's every year as opposed to every four years. Um, I think that'd be cool. And, you know, the the insight of how hard guys work is always something that, that I've appreciated and something I've always enjoyed to share when I've had the chance to do so as a reporter or as a host or whatever roles uh, that I've had the chance to uh, to share those stories. So that's the, the, the feel-good side of the Olympics. Then there is the article I just read from the New York Times telling us more detail or in more detail where Rio is right now. And where Rio is right now is in no place to host the Olympic Games. Now, I am not naive enough, bombastic enough to sit here on a podcast that I have no idea how many people are listening to, but let's just say it's not a it's not a big enough number that sponsors are running at me saying, "Hey, can you plug Underwear seems to be a big thing that people are plugging on podcasts these days. Can you plug our brand of underwear? No one's no one's asked me to sell underwear <laughs> or website development or whatever else people sponsor on podcasts. So I'm not I'm not going to sit here and be like I demand that the games should not be in Rio and expect that anyone would listen to me. But man, the games shouldn't be held in Rio. There are so much logistically there there is so much logistically that has to get figured out over the long term to plan 
the games anywhere. An event of that magnitude, whether it be World Cup, Olympics, Super Bowl, um, whatever. And obviously the, the World Cup and the Olympics are on an even different level because it's like the Super Bowl times three weeks. And the security and the infrastructure and all of that. Well, Rio doesn't even have the infrastructure down. Forget the security, forget the planning, forget the logistics. They don't have the place. Uh, uh, one of the bays where the sailing events are supposed to be held, uh, it's supposed to be cleaned up. It's incredibly polluted. Not getting, not getting done. There's the Brazilian government's literally gone. Like, nope, not gonna happen. Sorry. Whoops. Through no fault of their own, Zika has hit Brazil incredibly hard. So there are many athletes that are not going to compete, including some very big names. Golf making its inaugurational or its inaugural appearance. Inaugurational. Inaugural appearance. Rory McElroy not appearing. Then there are the uh, more self-imposed problems. Not those nasty mosquitoes who invaded. No, no, no. No, no, no. Massive corruption scandal that sunk the entire economy. Yeah, that one's that one's a problem. Crime rates are up. Their economy is beyond a disaster. Their political system. Their If you think Trump is causing ruckus here, man, their political system is is even worse off down there. They are in. They they can't find a leader. Like they had a guy who they kicked out because he was corrupt, and they for some reason let him pick his replacement. Not real smart on that one. And then that lady was corrupt, and then they kicked her out. And the next guy they found, they're investigating for corruption now. So like they literally can't find someone to run the damn country who isn't involved in any number of corruption scandals. This is not the time to host the world. And I just I don't understand how the International Olympic International Olympic Committee at this point hasn't and it it's kind of is too late now, a month or so, month and change from the games. If if they were to emergency change the plans now, we're talking about some serious stuff that has to be reorganized and redone and, and stuff that's supposed to be planned over the course of four years being done in five weeks. But We've known this was happening for months. Could they have redone some of that stuff that was supposed to be done over the years in months? Well, depending on the place, sure. All Los Angeles needs to host the Olympic Games is a a rowing center. I'm sure there's got to be a place in Southern California somewhere where we can put some boats in the water and have some canoes and kayaks race each other. We can figure that out. You have to plan an opening ceremonies? Sure. Difficult. Eh, it can be done. But the infrastructure all exists. The economy is not in a full-blown recession. There are, of course, every place has their their problems, but the problems that we have here are nothing compared to what they've got going on there. And I'm sure there are other places that could have hosted as well. I have no idea if, say, Sydney, Australia, you know, 16 years removed from hosting the Games could refurbish some of what they did and host again. You know, just figure it out. 
But to go to Rio right now seems insane. But then again, insane is kind of what the International Olympic Committee does, (laughs) which is horrifically sad for an event that means so much to so many people. Uh, Thanks to Nick Friedel. Thanks to Tyler Kern for joining me here on the Hoffman Show today. Probably have a free agency primer NBA on uh, either Thursday or Friday, and we'll see... uh, you know, if it's Friday, we might even have some news. I mean, last last year, immediately after midnight, there was news. Uh, free agency opening Thursday night into Friday morning, 12 o'clock midnight on July 1st. Uh, again, thanks to Nick. Thanks to Tyler. Thanks to you, as always, for listening. Subscribe on the Hoffman Show, or to the Hoffman Show on HoffmanShow.com. Subscribe to the blog. Subscribe on iTunes. Consume it in as many ways as you possibly can. Get yourself full. A full belly. Nobody goes home hungry. Uh, All right. I'm going to stop talking now. Goodbye.